Um, if you if you have your study sheet that I passed out last week, um, you'll notice that my original intent uh, today was to get through chapter five and into the first few verses of chapter four. Uh, excuse me, chapter six. We're going forward, not backward, contrary to popular belief. And uh, but. Uh, as the week wore on, and as I as I did preparation, I thought, uh, well, that's not realistic. <laughs> so I scaled it back to try to try today just to do chapter five. But we we have had the opportunity to spend quite a bit of time uh, sharing prayer requests and praying, and that of course is important. So we'll just go as far as we can go in chapter five uh, today, uh, and uh, and. What we don't get done today, we'll pick up next week. And, and ideally, I would like to get through, by next week, I'd like to get through uh, about verse 12 of chapter 6. But we may or may not do that. And, and uh, it's more important that we uh, learn what God wants us to learn than that we keep a schedule. So, uh, we'll, uh, uh, we'll just see how, how things progress at this point. Uh, pardon? As long as we're through Christmas. Through what before Christmas? <laughs> chapter five, yeah, we'll be through chapter five by Christmas. <laughs> I say that now, yes. <laughs> Don't hold me to it, John. So, uh, but uh, let's uh, let's do this. Let's let's take a moment just to think uh, before we read chapter five. Let's take a moment to kind of review chapter uh, the things that we talked about last week in chapter four, and let's don't take a lot of time on that. But uh, but what do you remember uh, from our discussion last week in uh, the last half or so of chapter four? Threatening. Makes you think about what the Lord says later about vengeance is mine and I will repay and and He's taking vengeance into His own hands. Yes. Uh huh. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yes. We have Seth, and, and Seth is born, and then to, to Seth is born Enish. We'll talk a little bit more about that today. And, uh, and the immediate effect is that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. There's, a, there's an immediate influence of righteousness through the descendants of Adam, Seth, and, and Enish. And uh, it's, a, it's really a stark contrast, and we'll see more of that contrast as we go through chapter 5. And into chapter 6, we'll be talking quite a bit about this contrast between uh, Canaan's line and Seth's line. And Seth's, excuse me, Seth's line. That's hard to say. <laughs> so, uh, Rick, I've been listening to this motivational uh, tape this last week, and the guy was talking about the effect of one decision and the impact. And, and actually, you can see it right here, and I didn't think about that. We tend to think, well, it's just, you know, just me, I'm not going to impact that much. But apparently, Either Seth or his son made a decision, and it probably and it had an impact on yes. many, many people yeah. following yeah. God. Yeah. It's just one decision, yeah. Just yeah. one course of action. Yeah. So we can do the same thing yeah. in our family. And the flip side of that is we see the effects of that one decision that Adam and Eve made <laughs> in the garden to eat the fruit, and the effect of that, and the death of their the death of one son and the loss of another and, and their daughter with him as, as Cain's wife and just the tremendous losses that they suffered as a result of a decision they made not to obey the Lord. Yeah? Just one quick note that I was reading some material today that Adam and his decision resulted in all these terrible consequences. However, because of God's grace and mercy and Increase their total dependence on Yeah, yeah, good point. Good point. Well, let's move on. Uh, we have at the end of chapter four, we have uh, uh, God uh, renews His covenant promise with Adam and Eve regarding the promise of a redeemer, of a promise of a of the seed who would crush the serpent's head, and He does that through the birth of Seth, who of course is the replacement for Abel, whom Cain murdered. Okay. And so then we go in chapter 5, we go on into what is the next Toledot, the next account, the next book, if you will, of generations. So remember, uh, generation is bo- uh, Genesis is broken down into ten Toledots or ten accounts or ten uh, uh, kind of divisions or chapters. Okay, And so you had the prologue, which was chapter 1, uh, into the first three verses of chapter 2, and then beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, you have the first Toledot or the first account of generations and that is the account of the generations of the heavens and the earth. And it basically has to do with Adam and with Eve and the story of Cain and Abel and that gets us up to the end of chapter 4. Now we're entering into the second account or the second Toledot. Okay? And this is, the, this is the account of the generations of Adam. And remember, as we said before, that when we, when we have, uh, uh, the, for example, the Toledot of Adam, we're not, it's really not so much about Adam as it is about Adam's descendants. Okay? When we have the Toledot of, of uh, Noah's sons, it's not really about Noah's sons. It's about the descendants of Noah's sons. Okay, So we're entering into the second book or the second Toledot of Genesis with chapter 2. And this goes, up, uh, goes all the way up through chapter 6, uh, verse 8. And then you pick up uh, the third Toledot beginning in chapter 6, verse 9, which is the uh, Toledot or the records of the generations of Noah. Okay, So this is, the, this is as I said, the second Toledot. Um, 
a couple of things I we should say just kind of preliminary, and then we'll read the chapter. Is uh, we we need to remember that the chapter is somewhat sketchy in its details. Okay, it doesn't tell us a whole lot of information about most of these guys, really about any of them, and virtually nothing about some of them. Okay, so we want to be careful about speculation. It's very easy to start speculating when you get into a chapter like this, and we want to uh, avoid that. But another thing we want to keep in mind as we read the chapter is remember to whom the book of Genesis was written, for whom it was written. It was written for the Israelites while they were in the wilderness. Okay, So it was written primarily for the Israelites, or first of all, we should say for the Israelites, ultimately, eventually, of course, for all of God's people and for us. But initially it was written uh, with the Israelites in mind as they are preparing to enter into the Promised Land. So all this information about... Uh, that they've been reading about uh, as they go through the first, uh, the prologue and the first Taladot and now into the second Taladot. All this has relevance to them as they are thinking about who they are and where they've come from and where they're going. Uh, so keep that in mind as we're going through that. Um, well, let's just go ahead and read the chapter then and, and, and we'll pick it up and we'll talk about uh, uh, some other issues. Beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and He blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness according to his image and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enish. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enish and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Enish lived 90 years and he became the father of Kenan. Then Enish, uh, Enish lived 815 years after he became the father of Kenan and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enish were 905 years and he died. Kenan lived 70 years after he became the father of Mahalalel. Then Kenan lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahalalel, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Mahalalel lived 65 years, and he became the father of Jared. Then Mahalalel lived 830 years after he became the father of Jared, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Jared lived 162 years and he became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and he became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. 
Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. When Methuselah lived, uh, then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah. This one will give a, uh, excuse me, he called his name Noah saying, this one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. Noah was 500 years old and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay? Well, welcome to the genealogies of the Scripture. Okay? And you read that and with uh, two or three exceptions you may go, why do we bother reading all of this? Okay? But we need to remember that this book is written by the Holy Spirit. And the genealogies are recorded by the Holy Spirit for purpose, for a reason. And we talked a little bit about genealogies last week. Remember, we talked about different kinds of genealogies. And, uh, and, and we want to talk a little bit more about that today. Uh, and, and today we're going we're gonna to just do some foundational stuff. We're going to think and talk about some some background information and cultural information. And it's really stuff that if we really want to understand what's going on here, and if we want to understand what's going on in Genesis, we need to understand some of the things we're going to talk about today. So, so forgive me if we get a little bit maybe academic today, but some of this stuff that we're going to talk about is, is, uh, is uh, really foundational and really important for us to understand. One of the things... Uh, that we have to confront when we come to a chapter like Genesis chapter 5 and we'll, we'll, this will happen again. We'll get Genesis chapter 11. We'll run into it again. And uh, uh, so we're going to be dealing with issues about genealogies. And, and one of the problems is uh, when we read genealogies as, as Christians, we're reading through our Bibles and we come to the genealogies in Scripture. And there's a bunch of them. <laughs> They're all over the place and we come to them. And oftentimes it's easy just to kind of get to them, just kind of skim through them and read on and, and move on because to us it doesn't seem like they're important. Uh, and uh, so it's easy to skip over them. And the other reason we skip over them is they're really hard to understand. <laughs> uh, Really, the, the, the understanding of genealogies in the Scripture is particularly difficult for those of us living in the 21st century. Okay? Because the genealogies that are recorded in Scripture and, and all ancient genealogies, really are, they're really a different animal than the genealogies that we typically think of today. They're written for a different purpose and they're written with different criteria in mind. Okay, So... So in, in, for example, the, the genealogies in, say, our modern genealogy, when we get into a modern genealogy today, pretty much the idea is we want to figure out everybody who was our ancestor, say, going back you know, four or five generations or back to the Revolutionary War. To, and we like to study all our ancestors and know all about them and get all this information about them. And you'll notice that the genealogies in Scripture don't do that. They don't give us all the information about all these intervening generations and all these intervening people. Okay? Uh, the other thing about 
the genealogies in Scripture is that is that they're really intended to show connections. For example, we were talking last week about linear genealogies, and the idea with a linear genealogy is to show a connection with the person who's kind of down at the end of the genealogy with the person who's at the beginning of the beginning of the genealogy, either for establishing uh, uh, their right to uh, some position or some office or something like that. Okay, so. The purpose, of, the purpose of ancient genealogy is really a little bit different than the purposes of genealogy today. And for that reason, they're really written with different criteria in mind. So today, when we want to, when we want to have a genealogy today, we want to have all the details. And we want to have everybody, you know, we want to trace back everybody uh, in the lineage, okay? But oftentimes in ancient genealogies, and particularly in the scriptures, you don't have that. So we have with genealogies in the Bible, we have a, we have a phenomenon that, that's uh, called by some fluidity, as in fluid, okay? And, and the deal with fluidity in the genealogies is that, is that genealogies, ancient genealogies oftentimes were not complete. And there might be, if you had, if you had two recorded genealogies of the same line of descendants, uh, you might come across some differences in them because of this fluidity. Okay, a classic example of this that we've all read and we've all wondered about and puzzled about is the difference between the genealogy of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew and the genealogy of Christ in the in the Gospel of Luke. Okay, there's clearly a considerable difference in those two genealogies. Okay, that's what we call fluidity. Okay, and fluidity involves several things, but primarily it involves. Uh, it involves an element of what we call telescoping or compression. Okay, so oftentimes when someone's recording a genealogy in ancient times, and particularly in the scriptures, the objective is to make a connection between. Oftentimes, the objective is to make a connection between the beginning and the end of the genealogy. So it's really not necessary to list every single person in the lineage. And so oftentimes in the scriptures, and it's, this is easy to document, you can compare one genealogy with a similar genealogy, uh, like when we compare the genealogy in Luke with the one in Matthew and in Chronicles, you can do the same thing. Uh, when you compare genealogies against genealogies, you find that oftentimes the writer, the recorder of the genealogy will compress the genealogy. That is, he will leave out names. Okay. Because all the names aren't important. The, point, the, port, the important thing is the connection between the beginning and the end or some other issue that he's trying to illustrate or demonstrate by the genealogy. Okay? So they use this element of compression or telescoping of the genealogy. And, and basically what that means is that oftentimes in biblical genealogies there are gaps. There are names that are left out, okay? And like I say, that's very easy to document. I don't have the examples here in front of me, but I could get them to you if you want them, okay? Uh, the other problem that you run into with uh, biblical genealogies, uh, another aspect of fluidity, is that oftentimes names will be changed or spellings will be changed. So there appears to be, it appears that, that a, a different person is cited in this genealogy than is in, cited in this genealogy, when really they're not different. 
They're the same. It's just the spelling of the name has been changed or, or maybe the person was originally known by two different names and so the person recording the genealogy lists one and, and, and somebody recording a similar gene, or a corresponding genealogy might list the other name. And so you have this fluidity that goes on with genealogy which, which makes the study and the understanding and the interpretation of genealogies ex, an extremely complex and difficult science. Okay? That's the point I'm trying to get to. It's not an easy thing to do. Okay? Now, we're dealing with one specific genealogy, and that is the genealogy right now of the line of Seth, the Sethite genealogy, which is listed for us in chapter 5. Okay? And the question that we have to wrestle with when we come to chapter 5 is how much is this fluidity of genealogies, how much is this a factor in the genealogy of Seth that's listed for us in chapter 5? And among conservative evangelical theologians, there's quite a bit of disagreement about how much fluidity exists here in chapter 5. And, and one of the reasons for that is because it's very difficult just looking at any given genealogy by itself and not looking at other sources, for example, other comparable genealogies elsewhere in Scripture or even outside research from archaeology or whatever. If you just look at the genealogy itself, it's very difficult to tell how much fluidity there is, how much compression and telescoping there is that goes on uh, in a given genealogy. So when we look at chapter 5, the question is, how much of this should we understand is exactly so-and-so begets so-and-so as their immediate descendant and he lives so, he lives so long and et cetera, et cetera. How much of this should we take as literal or how, might, how many gaps or how much compression or how much telescoping has gone on in chapter 5? Okay, and that's the question that uh, theologians wrestle with. And as I said, uh, conservative evangelical theologians come down all over the place on this. Okay, But I would... As near as I can tell, what appears to me to be the majority opinion among evangelical conservative theologians is that there are some gaps in Genesis chapter 5. Okay, that's kind of the majority opinion. Okay, that there are some gaps. Okay, and there are actually they give a number of reasons. Uh, it's very complex, like I said. They give a number of reasons why they believe that there are some gaps in Genesis chapter 5. Uh, but really, two of the primary reasons, uh, two of the primary reasons that are given, now I'm not going to address all their reasons, but two of the primary reasons that are given are, are one, we know that there's fluidity and compression in most of the genealogies in Scripture. Okay. In almost all the genealogies of Scripture, there is some compression. There are, there are some gaps. Okay? Uh, and so it is assumed that there are gaps in Genesis chapter 5 because there are gaps in, in so many of the other genealogies. So it's just the assumption we should expect to see gaps in Genesis chapter 5. Okay? Even with that being said, however, until about 200 years ago, the vast majority of, of, uh, of Christian uh, teachers and, and, and scholars, guys like Calvin and Luther and all these guys, did not believe that there were gaps in chapter 5. Okay? 
But something happened a couple hundred years ago that became a major influence in helping people or leading people to look for or expect that there would be gaps in chapter 5. Can you imagine what that might be? What's gone on in the last 150, 200 years that's influenced our perspective on history? Uh, well, okay, the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay, that's been within the last 50 years or so, but what else? How about Darwin? <laughs> okay, uh, discoveries in the area, discoveries and opinions in the area of science and discoveries and opinions in the area of genealogy have led uh, uh, many people to assume that the earth is older than people used to think the earth was, okay? And so that has become actually a major influence even among uh, uh, Christians uh, reading Genesis chapter 5 to expect that really we need to find more time than Genesis 5 seems to uh, allow us. Uh, Yeah, that's true, that's true. So, So my approach is this. My approach is I'm going to try to let, as much as I can, just let the text speak for itself. Okay? And if that puts me to some degree at odds with modern science or modern archaeology, uh, then I prefer to stand there. I prefer to stand with what I understand, given reasonable rules of hermeneutics, of biblical interpretation, is what the text says. Okay? And, and, and if that makes me uncomfortable when I... Uh, when I have to deal a little bit with modern science or modern archaeology, uh, I, where I come down on, on that is, you know, I'd rather stand with what the Word of God says and let science figure out later, you know, what's right and what's wrong. Okay? So, so when it comes to the issue of Genesis chapter 5, there are, and I only listed a couple reasons why people believe that there are gaps there in Genesis chapter 5. But, but, but I've looked at all the major reasons and I've looked at the arguments uh, regarding those major reasons. Uh, on the flip side of the argument, the question is, uh, what are the arguments that there aren't any gaps in Genesis chapter 5? Okay? And, and there are several that I think are, are uh, telling arguments. And uh, pick up my notes here. Uh, The, the first thing, as we might say, as you read Genesis chapter 5, there don't appear to be any gaps. But as we said, in looking at genealogy, it's always, if you just look at the genealogy itself, it's always very difficult to determine if there's fluidity, if there's compression in the genealogy, just by looking at the genealogy without looking at other comparative sources, either in Scripture or outside of Scripture, uh, other research. Uh, but as you read the chapter, there just doesn't seem to be uh, any uh, any gap at all in in Genesis chapter five. The second thing is that Genesis chapter five and Genesis chapter eleven are really unusual in the way they are formulated as far as genealogies are concerned. You'll notice in Genesis chapter five he gives these numbers, okay, and he says A was born and he lived uh, X number of years. And then he gave birth to B, 
uh, and then he lived so many years and he died. Okay, and you have this repeated cycle. Okay, well, if you just read that and you take those years at face value, uh, it's almost impossible to find any way to insert a gap because it says so and so lived so long and he gave birth to so and so. Okay, and 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 then that so and so lived so many years and he gave birth to so and so. So when you when you look at the when you look at the the numbers that are given to us in Genesis chapter five, and Genesis chapter five and Genesis chapter eleven, as I said, are unique in this respect. Most of the genealogy of scripture don't list years like that. Okay, so it's very much it's, it's very it's it's a lot easier to have compression and fluidity in the other genealogies, and they do, as we said, have compression and fluidity in them. Uh, it's much easier because they don't have numbers in them. Okay, they so and so beget so and so beget so and so beget so and so. Okay, so it's very easy to have compression. Uh, I should mention that that when when we come across a word like so and so was the father so and so or so and so beget so and so. Uh, that we must understand that, that the words begat and the words father do not always mean necessarily the immediate descendant. Okay, So don't just assume that because it says somebody begat so-and-so that it means that was his immediate son. It could mean that, he begat, that it was through his descent that so-and-so was born. Okay? So, so it's much easier if you don't have numbers to, to, have, to skip generations and that makes it easier to remember the genealogy and to memorize the genealogy and to pass it on. And there are a number of reasons why they used compression. Okay, uh, but when we get to Genesis chapter five, when we get to Genesis chapter eleven, and, and I'm dealing primarily with five because eleven has a unique problem of its own. Okay, but when we're dealing with chapter five, the numbers, as I understand it, make it almost impossible to insert time gaps or space gaps in there. The second thing is, is that in many of the other genealogies in Scripture, we know there's compression because we can look at comparing genealogies and go, aha, when so-and-so recorded this genealogy and so-and-so somebody else recorded the similar or comparative genealogy, this guy inserts names that this guy doesn't have. Okay, And then we go, oh, well, then this guy obviously compressed his genealogy. And we have that, as I said, between Matthew and Luke. Matthew records uh, a number of genealogies coming up to, uh, to the birth of Christ. Luke includes many more in the same time frame. Okay? So clearly Matthew is compressed. Okay? And I assume Matthew compressed it to make it easy to learn, to memorize, or whatever his reasons. That's one of my assumptions. Okay? But what is interesting is so that, so that, we, know that we know that there's compression in some of the other genealogies. But what's interesting is with Genesis chapter 5, there is no evidence from anywhere else in Scripture that there are any gaps in chapter 5. So not only do we have the difficulty of the numbers present in finding any room to have any gaps, but we also have the fact that Genesis chapter 5, when when we look at at comparative genealogies in other places, for example, uh, Matthew and Luke, and where, where, they, where the genealogies overlap and we can compare the names and that sort of thing. There's just, there aren't any gaps in Genesis chapter 5. Okay. Uh, another thing that, that, is, uh, that is important is that in order to see gaps in Genesis chapter 5, and I want to get into the whole issue of hermeneutics here, but in order to, get, in order to see gaps in chapter 5, 
you really have to jump through some hermeneutical hoops. You really have to do some numbers hermeneutically. And when I'm speaking about hermeneutics, I'm talking about about our, our method of interpretation, how we interpret Scripture. And there are certain hermeneutical principles that we follow. There are certain guidelines or, or, or ways that we interpret Scripture, techniques that we use to make sure that we're getting the right interpretation. Okay, And, and in order to interpret that there are gaps in Genesis chapter 5, we really have to bend over backwards on our hermeneutics to a point that I am uncomfortable with. Okay, so I have come to the position, and, and as I teach the chapter, and we're obviously not going to get very far today, uh, but as I, as I teach the chapter, I want you to know where I'm coming from, and I am coming from the position that there are no gaps in Genesis chapter 5. I'm coming from the position that the numbers in Genesis chapter 5 should be taken literally. Yes, sir, Rick. No. No. Uh, liberal uh, liberal theologians do all kinds of numbers with Genesis chapter five. Uh, no pun intended. They do all kinds of things, and they of course also see gaps and all kinds of other things, and they compare it to Babylonian genealogies and all sorts of things. Okay, so they do all kinds of stuff. Okay, but there are many solid evangelical theologians, and I've read several of them just in the last week. Uh, men whom you would respect, okay, who expect to see or expect that there are gaps in Genesis chapter 5. Okay. Uh, so, no, I wouldn't say that they're liberal. And I wouldn't say that they're even inclining towards liberal. Uh, but, and, and they have a host of reasons why they see it. I've listed a, I only listed a couple. There, there are several. Okay. So, no, I wouldn't characterize someone who sees gaps in Genesis chapter 5 as being uh, liberal. Uh, as I said, there are many very conservative. And, and in fact, among conservative evangelical theologians, I would say that the position that there are no gaps is actually the minority position. Okay. So, uh, so the position that I hold, I would say, is probably the minority position among evangelical conservatives. Okay. Uh, but it is very popular among young earth creationists uh, for obvious reasons. Okay. There was a guy by the name of Bishop Usher back in the 17th century. And he sat down and he took the genealogy of Genesis 5 and the genealogy of Genesis 11 and all kinds of other data and information that he had. And he calculated from them the age of the earth back to creation. Okay? And you may have had in some time in your life a Bible which in the margins indicated that creation was in 4004 B.C. Okay? He arrived at that by calculations from, from uh, uh, calendars and historical data, etc., and also using the calculations in Genesis chapter 5. Okay. Well, I'm not going to be that extreme. I'm not going to say we can pinpoint creation to a certain Sunday in the year 4004. But I am going to suggest to you that I believe that Genesis chapter 5 records for us ten, all the ten generations between, Noah, between Adam and Noah. And when I say ten generations, that's including Adam and including Noah. Ten guys, okay? And that the numbers that are listed for us are literal numbers. So, in other words, I believe that Adam lived 
for 930 years. Now, obviously, we're running out of time here, so we're, we're not going to get very far. I warned you it was all going to be academic today. <laughs> uh, but uh, So I believe Adam lived for 930 years. And I believe that when he was 130 years old, he gave birth. He didn't give birth. <laughs> he fathered Seth. Okay? He fathered Seth. Now, we do know that Adam fathered two sons before that. Right? He fathered Cain and he fathered Abel. Okay. Now, most theologians assume that with the exception of, of Seth, that all these other names here listed are firstborn until you get down to the three descendants of Noah. Okay? I, 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 I couldn't assert that. I, I wouldn't say that dogmatically because it's very clear Seth is not the firstborn. So I don't know if these guys are first, firstborn. What is important with this Sethite line is not that each one of these guys are the firstborn, but that each one of these guys are the ones through whom the righteous line proceeds. Okay? That's what's important. And we know that the righteous line proceeds how? How does somebody become a part of the righteous line? Through faith, okay? Which is why Jacob was in the righteous line and Esau wasn't. When we get, it, when we get up to that, we'll see that. That whole issue about who gets the birthright and all that sort of thing. And Jacob gets it because Jacob walked by faith and Esau despised his birthright, okay? So, I'm not going to assert for you that, that all these guys are the firstborn, but I am going to suggest to you that Scripture is quite clear that they are all the line through which the promised seed comes. Okay. Now, I'm going to pass out to you this other handout because I've got it uh, and uh, we, we won't really even get to look at it till next week, but I'll pass it out to you. So, stick it in your Bible and bring it back next week. But I drew up this chart because one of the things we don't think about is the overlap that exists between uh, these, uh, these people in... Uh, uh, somebody give me one of those charts. I need one to look at while I'm talking about it. <laughs> here, give, here, why don't you... Uh, well, you got... There we go. Okay, great. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, so, just, uh, just briefly, what I want to point out to you is that, is that if these numbers are literal and if there are no gaps, okay, which I'm assuming there are not for the reasons I have given, then we know that Adam lived to see the birth of Seth, Enish, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, uh, Methuselah, and Lamech. And uh, that's going to get... We're, next week, uh, we're gonna, we'll get into some other issues about uh, patriarchal tribal society and then, and then we'll try to get into some of the spiritual applications of all this, uh, which, of course, obviously is the reason we're, getting, we're doing all this is what does this mean for us you know, why does it make any difference to us, okay? This is all, not just all abstract stuff from thousands of years. This stuff makes a difference in our lives, and we'll want to look at that. And we'll want to look at this whole concept of the patriarch and, and, and that sort of thing. We'll get into that. But bring this chart with you. We'll talk about that next week, and we'll just pick up where we left off and, and go on from there, okay?